Think about the last rule that you broke. How much did your relationship with the person who gave the rule affect whether or not you were going to obey it or disobey it? In Leviticus 20, we see that God wanted the Israelites to be His people. In fact, they were His people. He said in verse 24, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples, which is to say that He had separated them for Himself, that they would be His people. He took the land of Canaan away from the idolatrous and immoral people that lived there to give it to His people Israel that He had chosen for Himself. But there is this warning both here and several other times in the Old Testament that if they began to act like the pagan peoples that God had driven out before them, or in fact, from this passage perspective, would drive out before them, if they began to live the way that the pagan peoples lived, the same things would happen to them. The land would expel them. God's judgment would fall on them. And what sort of things would then lead them to that kind of sin if it would happen, and in fact we know looking back that it did, because they would fail to see their own responsibility for sin. We see throughout verses 6 through 21 this idea of blood guiltiness that comes upon them. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And because they would fail to turn from their sin and turn back to God. And we see this also throughout Israel's history. They would pursue idolatry, they would fail to repent and turn back to God, and that was what led to their judgment. Not the mere fact of their sin, but their stubborn refusal to turn away from it. And so, from Leviticus 20, I think we'll see that sin rejects God, so we need to own it, take responsibility for it, and turn back from it to Him. First of all, this idea that sin rejects God. We see this in verses 1 through 8. How does it reject God, and how does it lead to God rejecting the sinner? Because it defiles God's place of worship and God's name. Verse 3, if someone was to worship Molech, give their children in child sacrifice and pagan rituals to Molech or to other gods, it would defile God's sanctuary and profane his name. Now, I was pondering this. How could you doing a pagan idolatrous sacrifice over here profane God's sanctuary if you're not doing it in God's sanctuary? The answer, I think, is this. The person comes over here, worships the idol. They come back over here, they gather with God's people, and pretends to worship God. Which God are they actually serving? If you worship an idol over here and come before God's presence here, that is uh, unacceptable to God. It is defiling to His place of worship. It is defiling to His name. Now, do we see this today? I think this idea of giving your children in sacrifice to a pagan god and then pretending to worship the true God uh, is not something that we would really see today, right? Actual human sacrifice is rare, at least in our country, perhaps not in the world as a whole. But what, where do we see a similar sort of attitude of a, a giving of our children not to God, but to other kinds of worship? And perhaps it's a little bit of a jump, but I don't think it's too great of a jump to 
see an application from what we see here to the attitude that I saw many times growing up and I think started a good while before I was a kid, which was, I may not believe a particular thing, but I'll let my kids sort of figure out what they want to believe on their own, right? In this case, they are actively dedicating their children to a God. In our society, people passively dedicate their children to pagan worship by abandoning them to all of the options that are out there in terms of religion, in terms of a way to live, in terms of what's normal as far as family and work and any other sphere of life, right? So we may not actively go and sacrifice our children to a pagan god, but if we passively let them go and serve other gods and other beliefs that are not true, related to the true God and what He has taught, the net result is the same. We have led our children to serve something other than God. And if we in good conscience or think that we are fine, I've come and I've said to my kids, go believe whatever you want, and then we come and worship the true God, if this is the absolute most important thing in our lives, how can we possibly say, hey, go figure it out on your own, but I'm going to do this right here. Now, the reality is, most people who say, go figure it out on your own, are not then coming to church and trying to worship the one true God. I think we recognize that, right? But is it possible for us as Christian parents, grandparents, church members who have influence on the lives of kids through Sunday school and Wednesday night and all these sorts of things, is it possible for us to see attitudes consistent with pagan worship in our kids, our grandkids, the kids of our church, and just say, eh, no big deal. Too much hassle if I bring that up. We don't have to go into every corner and search out everything and sort of have a suspicious attitude that's like, I'm trying to catch people doing a bad thing or saying a bad thing or acting in a way that looks like they believe something false. But at the same time, if you're having a conversation with someone and they said something like, well, you know, all paths lead to God, you'd want to correct that, right? Because that's false. You'd want to say, hey, but didn't the Bible say Jesus is the only way? And so not in an attitude that's trying to spy out all of the secret fallacies that people might believe, but just listening to the conversations that we have with people around us, especially with children and young people of our church who are perhaps more susceptible to being led astray, but even extending to all of us in our congregation, we need to recognize that there is a danger of being led astray from God to pagan worship, and this danger doesn't cease to exist simply because there's not a pagan temple down the road from us where people are being sacrificed, right? And lest we think that is extremely far-fetched, I was hearing something on the news recently. California, I believe, in one of the school districts, wanted to institute a sort of a throw-off-the-shackles-of-the-white-conquistador, whatever kind of thing, and they wanted to have the children in the class pray a prayer to one of the Aztec gods and ask that Aztec god for his help in, I think, variously restoring the earth, 
throwing off the influence of white people, eradicating the influences of Christianity. This isn't like Bible times. This is like California right now, right? What was true of those Aztec gods? Those Aztec gods were worshipped down in Mexico and in other places by capturing your enemies in battle, marching them as captives to the top of the pyramid, ripping their heart out of their chest and offering it in sacrifice to your God. Molech then, prayer to an Aztec god now. There's a pretty clear connection between those sorts of things. And those are the influences that maybe not right here, right now in schools in Michigan, but certainly in schools in other places around the world, those influences are there and they are real and we need to seek to guard our children from them. Not by isolating them from everything that is bad in the world, but by teaching them what is true. Not by saying we're going to hide away from everybody, but teaching them the gospel so that they can in turn be a light to those around them. And for them to succeed in that, all of us have to be involved in their lives. What is the other modern application to this idea of defiling God's worship in God's name? Do we see any parallel examples in the New Testament of what God called the Israelites to do? Well, notice what it said, that if the people should disregard the man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as not to put him to death, I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off and all those who follow his bad example. We are not an ethnic nation set apart as God's chosen people. That was true of the Israelites. It's not true of us. But we are a community of those who are, as we looked at in Sunday school, connected by faith in Jesus Christ, united to one another and to God himself. Which means, along with a bunch of other passages in the New Testament, we have a responsibility to the best of our ability to preserve the purity of our commitment to Christ together. So if we fail to recognize and confront sin in the context of the local church, is God more than capable of dealing with it himself? Yes. Let me give you an example. And this is something I didn't really ever think about until I was looking at this this week. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 says this, There are many who are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Many have died in connection with the taking of the Lord's table in an improper way. We tend to think taking the Lord's table in an improper way is like taking it flippantly or taking it, I didn't confess my sin right before I take it, right? But think about the connection back to this passage. There's a whole list in the next section of immorality that God said not to do. 1 Corinthians 5 outlines a scenario in which there's a man who has married presumably his mother-in-law, which is a violation of the principles we see in Leviticus 18 and 20. The church is rejoicing that he has this freedom in Christ to sin in this way and then come into God's presence. You see the connection here? Pagan practices, coming to worship God, arrogantly, which defiles and corrupts God's congregation, which then leads to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. I'll just read that for you real quick here.
He says, On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, having already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul's making a direct connection between celebrating the Lord's table while tolerating sin in the midst of the congregation and probably thinking back to the context of what is said in Leviticus 20 where the congregation failed to carry out God's punishment against sinners and then they all gathered before God in His sanctuary and acted as though they were worshiping God the way God wanted to be worshipped. So what's the application for us? Not, again... Like the thing with the kids. We're not listening to the kids. Oh, they said something wrong. They must love Satan. We need to, like, you know, scare them to death. That's not the point. But we are aware of false ideas that are circulating that they're being influenced by. In the same way, in the context of the local church, our goal is not to catch people doing something bad so we can get them kicked out of the church, right? That's the attitude of people in the last year with, like, mask rules and like because they're home and they're bored what sort of ordinance is my neighbor breaking so i can get the city after them because i'm mad at them you know that's that's a very like snitchy self-service self-serving selfish kind of attitude right our motivation is not to be i'm going to get you because it helps me out our attitude should be God wants the congregation to be pure and holy for him. He's called us out to be separate and unique before him. So if we tolerate sin in the midst of the congregation and we don't deal with it because it's a hassle or we don't think it's worth it or whatever else, it corrupts and defiles the whole assembly. And especially when we gather to celebrate the ordinances like baptism and particularly the Lord's table and we haven't dealt with sin, Paul says... You can't be boasting in your sin and then go take the Lord's table and act like everything's okay because you're defiling God's name and God's sanctuary. And when I say God's sanctuary, I don't mean this building. Sometimes we've had, I don't know if you grew up this way, when I was a little kid, it's like, don't run an auditorium, right? Because it's God's sanctuary, right? This is not a sanctuary in the way that the temple and the tabernacle were. It's not holy ground, this building, right? But when we are gathered as God's people, in God's presence, there is a sense in which both it is His sanctuary and we are His sanctuary. And so sin has no place in there. It has to be dealt with. It has to be confronted. And so the, the application from Leviticus for us is to deal with sin. Watch out for one another. Deal with sin. Confront it as we see it, right? Don't just act like it's a no big deal, sweep it under the rug. And I don't just mean the three sins that people get kicked out of churches for, right? Adultery, divorce, and I don't know what the third one is. Stealing something, maybe. That seems like those are the only three things people ever get out of church, kicked out of church for, right? We should be concerned when we see patterns of sin of whatever sort, right? Greed and gossip and selfishness and whatever else, right? whether it be in our lives or someone else's, that ought to cause us to pause and say, wait, something's not right. This needs to be dealt with, right? So that we are pure, so that God's name is not defiled, so that sin is dealt with. The other problem that we see here in connection with 
uh, this idea of sin rejecting God, is that it is committing spiritual adultery. We see this in verses 6 through 8. If you turn to mediums and spiritists, I will set my face against that person. Why? Because it says to play the harlot, to play the prostitute after him in the same way that verse 5, worshiping Molech was. What's the connection here? If you are joined to God, you can't be joined to an idol, right? Just in the same way that someone who is married to one person can't be joined to someone else or else it's adultery, it's immorality. And so God constantly throughout the Old Testament makes this connection between spiritual unfaithfulness to God and often the resulting physical immorality that's associated with worshiping pagan gods. And in this particular case, what's the specific sin that's in view? It's consorting with mediums or spiritists. What's the big deal about that? It's actually connected with the first sin that Satan ever tempted people to, right? What does a medium or spiritist do? They offer you knowledge. What did Satan do when he tempted Adam and Eve? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Usually people are looking for something mundane like, what did my husband or child or whoever that died, what, what's some message from them for me, right? But God said to the Israelites, you don't seek knowledge that way. Knowledge comes from me. Here's the challenge for us. God does not answer all questions for his people, but he does demand loyalty from them, right? We want God to tell us everything we want to know. And God says, I'm not going to do that. But you know what you can do and what I require of you? To trust me. And this goes back to the fact that if God is who he says that he is, he's going to do good for us, right? I recognize there's times when I should probably explain more things to my kids, particularly as they get older, right? Why are we doing this? But if I see a car coming flying down the street and I say, get out of the road, that's not the time for me to explain why they need to get out of the street. They just have to do it, right? And there are many dangers that God sees that we are perhaps oblivious to that he says, don't do this. And at the time, we, we, want, we say, we want, I want you to explain to me why I should do this. I want you to answer all of my questions for why this trial came into my life. I want you to help me understand all of this. You know what the reality is? We, sometimes we have this idea, God's going to answer all our questions when we get to heaven. I don't think all our questions are going to be answered when we get to heaven. We'll certainly understand more of it. We'll have eternity to explore the works and the ways of God. But we're not God. We don't see the whole picture. And so we either have to say, God is good and I can trust him and I can do what he calls me to do, or God is not good and I'm not going to trust him and I'm going to go try to find secret knowledge or helpful knowledge over here, whether it be by talking to a medium or a psychic or someone who studies astrology or whatever else, right? That was the choice that they had to make. And the choice that God was calling them to was worship me, not something else. Find knowledge in me, not somewhere else. So the first idea is that sin rejects God. And so if that's true, what should our response be? We need to acknowledge that it is sin. We need to own our sin, and we need to flee from it. We see this in verses 9 through 21 and also verse 27. Quick point of reference, verse 9. 
is, I think, a transition from the first section, and verse 27 ties together the first section and what has just been said. The reason that I say this is, verse 9 talks about cursing father and mother, but introduces this idea of responsibility. His blood guiltiness is upon him. All the rest of this section in the middle of the chapter is about various kinds of immorality. Why would there be a thing about cursing father or mother linked with blood guiltiness when the topic of everything else, it doesn't seem to fit? Because I think the point is being made, all sin has this element of responsibility associated with it. In the same way that verse 27, again, it's not immorality formally defined. It is worship of false gods seeking a medium or a spiritist, but same kind of idea, blood guiltiness upon them, they bear their sin, God is displeased with this false worship. And so 9 and 27 sort of link together the whole passage. But let's look at the middle section here. I'm not going to go into explanation of what all the different kinds of sins are. We talked about that in connection with Leviticus 18. 18 says, don't do it. Chapter 20 says, and here's the consequence if you do. What is the consequence? Sin brings guilt, even forfeiting or owing life itself. Verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, 16, 17, 19, and 20, there is some variation of the phrase, their guilt is upon them, their blood guiltiness is upon them. Think back to what we've seen about the connection between blood and life. He's saying their life is forfeit if they do this sin. We are tempted today to euphemize sin. What I mean by that is, we don't actually call it sin. We want to say, well, this person is a shopaholic instead of this person is greedy. This person tends to bend the truth a little bit instead of that person is a liar. This person uh, had an affair instead of this person committed adultery, right? When we change the way that we conceive of sin and the way that we talk about sin to make it more palatable and to distance ourselves from it, what do we then get to do? Make excuses for it. It's not my fault. It just happened. It's not something that I do. It's just part of who I am. It's, it's not something I can change. It just is. How can you be mad at someone for something that's a part of them? How can you be upset at someone for something that they were just tricked into doing? But all of these sins in the middle section of chapter 20 say this. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. God doesn't let us get off the hook and say, well, the sin just happened, or I didn't know better, or I didn't mean to, so I don't, it's not a big deal. God says, it's sin, acknowledge it as sin, it must be dealt with as sin. Here's the difference between chapter 20 and our experience today. In their time, what happened? The penalty fell on the person who sinned. They didn't really have an opportunity to turn from it, right? They were taken out, they were stoned. They were taken out, they were put to death in some other way. For us, what do we have opportunity to do? For someone, 1 Corinthians 5, who did the exact same sin that in Leviticus 20 would have meant that he was stoned, in the church, what happened? He had opportunity to repent. The congregation follows Paul's instructions to put him out of membership. He repents, and then Paul in 2 Corinthians says, now bring him back into fellowship. There wasn't really a place for that in the Old Testament. You sinned, you were cut off from the people, assuming they were doing what God called them to do. But we have opportunity and place for repentance today. We should take advantage of that. We should rejoice in that. 
So if we're going to confess our sin and turn from it, we have to acknowledge it as sin. And so don't hide your sin, don't cover it up, don't say, oh, it just happened, or I fell into sin as though it was a pit that suddenly opened up in front of me like a sinkhole, right? Here's what actually happens probably in 95% of cases when it comes to sin. I say, here's the thing I want to do. God doesn't want me to do it. I really want to do it. God doesn't want you to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. Now, if you do that often enough, what happens? The process becomes much shorter, right? If I, it's like a, a rut in the ground. You go over it when it's muddy. You go over it long enough. You sort of wear that rut down. If you've ever been riding a bike or driving a car through ruts, you know what's really hard to do? Get out of the rut and go a different direction. Can you do it? Yes, but it takes more and more effort, right? So what often happens is we know what we should do, but we've sort of worn down this path to this favorite sin that we do, and we just do it. And then it seems like it happened to us. But it only seems that way because we've done it so many times. And so I think what this passage would call us to do is to acknowledge that our sin is sin and to turn from it by God's help. We need to flee from sin. God's goal, verse 14, is so that there will be no immorality in your midst. Again, this sin seems to, verse 14, if there is a man who marries a woman and her mother is immorality, they shall all be burned with fire, so that there will be no immorality in your midst. The most extreme punishment in the whole chapter, not just put to death, but burned with fire, but it seems to be associated with the most specific statement of why God says to deal with all these sins so harshly. Why? God didn't want them to have this in their midst. But that was the Old Testament. God doesn't care about that sort of stuff today, right? Think about the structures that God... That's a false statement, by the way, in case anyone missed that. There are a number of structures that God has built into the assembly of the church and into our Christian lives so that the goal of verse 14 is accomplished. There would be no immorality in your midst. Church discipline. For example, 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, or the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So God still cared about it in New Testament times, right? Paul is writing to the Corinthians and saying, deal with this person who's committing immorality. You can't escape immorality. It's part of the world in which you live. But you cannot accept and tolerate it in the church. Is that a double standard? No. He's saying sphere of influence. You're responsible for people in the local assembly. You can't stop all the evil that's in the world around you. You can confront it, you can speak against it, but you can't stop it. You must deal with it when it's in the context of the local church. And so church discipline is the first way that God expects us to deal with and prevent and keep immorality from being in our midst. What's another way that we deal with it? First Corinthians, or, uh, Ephesians 5, 3-7 Immorality, impurity, or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse joking which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. So even in the very way that we talk, God wants us to be guarded against immorality and various kinds of sin in the context of the church. Furthermore, we are to be fighting against sinful desires. Verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So what are safeguards against immorality in the context of the church? Proper worship, including giving thanks to God. When we're not worshiping God and we're not giving thanks to God, it's often a symptom that we are being ruled by some sort of sinful desire. Paul uses the example of drunkenness, but it's not as though that's the only sinful desire that we can be ruled by, right? There are a lot of other things, right? I think in Christian churches, sometimes we say, well, you know, I don't ever drink, right? But I'm going to go hit up all the buffets and be a glutton, right? And that's cool because it's not drunkenness and that's all that God was concerned about. That's not true, obviously, right? I'm not saying it's sinful to drink coffee, but if you say, I've got to have my coffee in the morning before I can act like a Christian, you're not following this passage either. It could be any number of other things. It could be video games, it could be online shopping, it could be gambling, it could be whatever. Some of those things are sin, some of them may or may not be. The point is, when you are ruled by something and it has replaced God as the center and focus of your life, there's sin being tolerated in your life. The symptom is then you're not going to be worshiping God wholeheartedly. You're not going to be thankful to God, right? Because you're chasing after all these other things. And so if we want to be safeguarded against immorality and all these other things, we have to recognize what's actually ruling and controlling our lives. What else does God give us to help guard us in the church against the sort of things that he warns us about in a passage like Leviticus 20? Patterning submission in relationships. We see this in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, with husbands and wives, with children in 6, 1 through 4, and with slaves and masters in 5 through 9. When we refuse to acknowledge the authority structures God has created in the world, then that is potentially going to lead us into immorality as well. Now, can those authority structures be abused? Obviously. I'm not saying it's okay for a husband to be cruel or authoritarian toward his wife. I'm not saying that it's okay for a parent to be harsh and unkind toward their children. I'm not saying it's okay for a master to be harsh and, um, and selfish toward a slave. Or in our case, the application would probably be a master toward an, uh, a boss toward an employee, right? Even though they were talking about actual masters and slaves in this day. My point is to say this. When we reject those God-given authority structures, it does open us up to all sorts of sin and temptation, right? Last thing that I think we see that helps us safeguard against sins of immorality and similar things that we see in Leviticus 20 that God has built into the church today 
is Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We have the armor of God. This helps us to stand firm against temptation, a key and important part of which is prayer, which we should not underestimate the importance of. And so sin rejects God. We need to turn from sin and flee from it. But it's not enough just to say sin is bad, I'm going to move away from it and come over here, and now we're caught in a new and different sin, right? We need to turn not from one sin to another, but to God. That's what I think the end of the passage is reminding us of in Leviticus chapter 20. And here's, I think, the truth that underlies it. If we love God, we're not going to do what He detests and forbids. We're going to actually turn to Him in obedience. Disobedience led to God's rejection. We saw that with regard to the nations that were in the land of Canaan. I have abhorred them. I have rejected them. We see this in the New Testament. Judgment begins with the household of God. God wasn't just concerned about sin in the Old Testament. He's still concerned about it today. Disobedience not only led to God's rejection, but also to God's punishment. For them, it was expulsion, being kicked out of the land, right? This happened to the Canaanites when the Israelites came in. This happened to the Israelites when they had rejected God and rejected God and rejected God, and God sends the Assyrians and God sends the Babylonians to carry them away into exile. They're kicked out of the land, at least for a period of time. What about today? Is there a sense of God's punishment with regard to disobedience? Revelation 21 and 22, outside are those who, and then it gives a whole list of sins. So again, this continues even today. So negatively, we could do what he detests and forbids, and it leads to punishment. Positively, if we love him, we will obey him. What do we see here? We see this emphasis on keep my statutes and my ordinances. We see this in verses 7 and 8. We see this in verse 22. We see in verse 25, make a distinction. The idea is this, I've made you distinct from the peoples around you, therefore as your way of life, make a distinction between what I have said is good and not good in all the things that you do. Now, are those distinctions the same for us as they were for the Israelites? No. From the perspective of, they said, God told them you can't eat this bird or this fish or this animal, we don't have those dietary restrictions. But the same underlying principle that we make a distinction between good and evil, yes. How do we do that? The Word of God is living and active, piercing to the inmost part of man, showing us good and evil, showing us how we should live. Not only does obedience lead to God's blessing, He said, I will give you the land to possess it. 2 Corinthians 6.16 Instead of land, and I want to be careful here, because there are people who say God took the promises He made to Israel and He spiritualized them, and so now those don't apply anymore, and we only have the promises in the church. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, just like God gave the Israelites promises of the land, God gives us promises of heaven, which also involves land, right? Heaven is not just like some floaty thing up in the clouds, but a new heavens and a new earth, right? And so this is where the promises God made to the Israelites and the promises God makes to the church intersect, right? There won't be a division between the Israelites and the church and all of God's people throughout a history in the final eternal state in God's presence. 
But that doesn't mean God's forgotten his promises to them or taken their promises and said, no, they're for us. But in the same way God said, I will give you the land to the Israelites, God says, I will give you the opportunity that I will dwell among you and you will dwell with me. We are the temple of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. Romans 9, 25 to 26. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Not just for Israelites, but for Gentiles as well. Obedience doesn't only lead to God's blessing, but it also preserves our relationship with Him. In the Old Testament, we see this emphasis, particularly in this passage, on you are to be holy to me. I have set you apart. Verse 26. We come to the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. As the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. We are still set apart. We are with God. We have a relationship with God. That should affect us. Sin rejects God. If we recognize that, we will call sin by what it is and seek to put it off with God's help. God wants you to belong to Him. If we believe that and know that and realize that, we need to take active steps this week to draw closer to God. Sin rejects God, so own it and turn back from it to God. Because unlike those whose blood guiltiness was upon them in the Old Testament and who bore the penalty for their sin and had no place for repentance, you and I have the opportunity for Jesus to have paid for our sins, to repent and turn from our sins, and to serve God. And we should not take that privilege lightly. We should take advantage of it, and we should rejoice in it. Because we have something that in many respects they did not have. That doesn't mean that God is blind or God doesn't care about sin or God is weak compared to the Old Testament. But it means we have Christ and that is a great and wonderful gift. Let's pray. Lord, as we've looked at this passage this morning, there are many things that seem foreign and distant to us. Hopefully we see the same themes in the New Testament and see that these same ideas apply to us today. Help us to do what this passage is calling us to do. More importantly, help us to realize that we know you, belong to you, are in you, and that's what makes it possible for us to do the things you want us to do. Lord, as we go this week, help us to be pleasing to you as your people, set apart for you, that we might point others to that same hope. In Christ's name, amen.